Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello listeners of the History of Witchcraft. This episode is taken from the Scottish Revolution interview series over on Pax Britannica, where I've been interviewing experts on 17th century Scotland over the last few months. This interview is with an expert on witch beliefs, and though we don't really touch on witchcraft per se in this episode, we do talk a lot about godly possession and what Dr. Yeoman calls regenerate authority and heart work. Also, as I say in the introduction, Dr. Yeoman is one of the brilliant minds behind the Witch Hunt podcast, and so if you're looking for more witchcraft history, then go and check that out. Welcome to Pax Britannica. The Scottish Revolution Interview Series Piety and Heartwork in Covenant of Scotland with Dr. Louise Yeoman. Welcome to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution Interview Series. In this episode, I'm delighted to speak with Dr. Louise Yeoman. Dr. Yeoman is a specialist on 17th century Scottish religious beliefs and Scottish witch hunts. She is a presenter and producer for BBC Radio Scotland and has worked on many brilliant shows, including the Witch Hunt and Time Travels podcasts. Witch Hunt is a brilliant show covering the Scottish witch hunts over the course of six episodes. Each of these episodes includes interviews with some of the best experts in the field, including a few you might recognise from this interview series. If you like my own history of witchcraft, then you will love Witch Hunt, because I do. If witch hunts aren't for you, then check out Time Travels, which looks at a huge variety of topics in Scottish history, and again, includes interviews with experts. And when I say a huge variety of topics, I mean huge. The most recent episode, as of recording, combines the apocalyptic plans for Scotland after a nuclear war, including digging mass graves and a bunch of civil servants posing with their own coffins, to the exodus of Scots to America during the Californian gold rush, and how many tried to make it rich, and most failed. Both podcasts are fantastically well-produced and incredibly interesting, and I really do recommend you give them both a listen. You can do so everywhere you find your podcasts, on the BBC Sounds app, and you can find download links in the description of this episode. More details can be found in the show notes, as well as on the website, paxbritannica.info. Dr. Louise Yeoman, thank you so much for joining me today. Nice to join you, Sam. Last year, you published a chapter discussing Margaret Mitchelson, who was a... Well, let's start with that. Who was Margaret Mitchelson? So Margaret Mitchelson was a, a young woman who we think she was an orphan. We're Well, we're... we're got a fairly good idea that we think she was an orphan. David Stevenson reckoned that she was the daughter of the, the minister of St. Bothans, which, if that's correct, she came from a family of gentry status. They were lairds, 
one of the, the younger sons had become a minister. So fairly well up the social scale on that. So Margaret was the sort of orphan daughter from a ministerial family, we think. And the first sign we get of Margaret is in the autumn of 1638, when suddenly she turns up under the patronage of Mr. Henry Rollock, Minister of Trinity Kirk, Edinburgh, and she's having these amazing, inspired speeches. And it's a whole performance. You know, she's not just standing up and giving a speech. No, she's falling down. She's falling down. She's going into trances. She's sighing, sobbing, lamenting, fainting. And she's having just for hours and hours, Margaret can give you these amazing inspired speeches about the National Covenant. How amazing it is. Jesus, how amazing Jesus is. The wonderful, wonderful gratitude the believer feels for being saved by Jesus despite being really sinful. So, you know, she, she's just this amazing exemplar of Presbyterian piety. And because she's saying Jesus himself backs the covenant, everyone's going, wow. She's saying that Jesus backs the covenant. When are we talking here? 1638? 1638. Where September 1638 is when Margaret comes on the scene. And it's this very, very interesting window of time for the National Covenant because the Covenant doesn't have any of the normal sources of authority you would expect in Scots society. Well, let's take the king. The king is not in favour. <laughs> the king is... <laughs> That's putting it mildly. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> he's, he's having his own covenant, basically saying, not their covenant, my covenant. And then, you know, you don't have a parliament. Parliament has not met and backed the, the National Covenant, so you don't have Parliament. Okay, let's try our other source of authority, the General Assembly. Nope, they've not had a General Assembly. So it's like, whoa, whoa, who's behind this? You've, you've got the, uh, the authors of the Covenant, people like Alexander Henderson, Archibald Johnson of Warriston, and you've got various of the, the Scots lords and gentry who are backing it. But this... This really, in early modern Scots terms, is not enough. This is quite a dicey time for the covenanting cause. And as Laura Stewart says, this is sort of the time where they have to make a public. This is the time where the, the public and their opinions, the, the Edinburgh crowd really, becomes important. Your covenant's got to be popular. So there's various kinds of outreach going on. I suppose propaganda, we'd say now, PR for the covenant. One branch of that is there's a guy who says, I was a Jesuit and I got better. That's <laughs> Thomas, Aber <laughs> Thomas Abernethy. You know, you see how right you are, uh, you know, to stand by the, the covenant and the Protestant cause. And another character who pops up at this time is Margaret. And so we meet Margaret Trinity Kirk having her inspired speeches and she's doing this, the person who's sponsoring her, because obviously teenage girls just don't pop up on the streets and give massive politicised religious performances. So we're looking at the minister of Trinity Kirk, Henry Rollock, as her initial patron. Now Henry Rollock didn't come on to the side of the anti-prayer book people who become the Covenanters quickly. He was actually somebody who almost came on board at the last minute. But he has got a mega fan, we might say, who is in at the heart of the Covenant all the time, and that's Archibald Johnston of Warriston. And Johnston of Warriston, Edinburgh lawyer, co-author of the Covenant, but he also is just one of the top exemplars of this kind of Presbyterian piety that I study, which they themselves called heart work. So that's what I call it. 
it gives the lie to the whole idea of Calvinists as these boring buttoned up people. They are just they're just not <laughs> like that at all. This is this was the huge shock to me when I I did my original research for the the PhD. I you know I'd been brought up on all these images of stern, douce, reserved Calvinists, and I was sort of going, they're being completely carried away with their feelings. They're having ecstatic speeches. Sometimes it takes them to wordless places where they have bodily manifestations. Sometimes they fall down. And I'm sort of like, this isn't like the Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) This is not what I see in school assembly when the minister comes. And it was like, whoa, what is going on with these people? And the, the motor of covenanting piety is a kind of prayer called extempore prayer conceived prayer they tend to call it it's really cathartic prayer from the heart where you sort of pour out every bad thing you've done that you're sorry for everything you're grateful for how you love God how you're so in love with God with Jesus Christ your bridegroom they love imagery from the song of songs and they tend to also conflate that with imagery from the the song from the book of Revelation they love this sort of imagery from the song of songs about Jesus the bridegroom and they also sort of like to conflate that with imagery from the book of Revelation where you get the bride of the lamb so you know bride of Christ bride of the lamb christ is the lamb so once you sort of mix up all this really erotic stuff with all the apocalyptic stuff oh my what a cocktail so this is this is the kind of imagery you get coming through when people are praying when they're pouring things out and they also use this for what we call providential decision making for telling you which way God is telling you to go. So, you know, if I'm Archibald Johnson of Warriston and I want to know what I should do about the covenant and I go and pray to God and I say, you know, this covenant, should I go on with it? And then God gives me wonderful liberty in prayer. I am full of ecstatic feelings and being Archie, I pray for about three, four hours, you know, driving my whole family mad, probably, unless that closet is really sound proofed um so if i you know so i get this <laughs> this is the you know this, this is the holy spirit you know if you're 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 having this amazing liberty in prayer saying you know god do we go ahead do we sign this covenant you know and you get this amazing liberty in prayer well that's yes that's your hotline to god god has said yes the other thing you get is what i call text getting which is where you get a verse from the bible come home to your heart with life and power. In fact, the the best example I can give you off the top of my head is is Cromwell. And you know the Cromwellian prayer groups where they come to conclusions like Charles Stewart is the man of blood or the crown is an accursed thing. But you get very... Covenanters do sort of really similar things. Bible verses suddenly come bang with real force, not just into the mind, but into the body. You've got these passionate, ecstatic feelings. And that, that's also a big divine yes. You know, that, that's God saying, you do that. So this is what I would call regenerate authority, okay? So for you to be having these kind of experiences and to be sort of, you know, into the kind of pious networks that have these experiences, you would have to have had something which we call the conversion experience. And that is your experience of great 
joy, spiritual joy, that you realise you are one of the elect, that you're not going to hell, that God loves you. And usually people go through these terrible traumatic phases where they believe they're going to hell, often when they're adolescents. And, you know, they're, they're being preached to about the, the reprobates, about going to hell, that you cannot save yourself by works. You can't save yourself by going around being a good person because you're still really sinful and you still have really sinful thoughts. Just check out the sort of things you are, you are thinking. Maybe you are in church and you are lusting after your landlord's daughter. You know, you, you deserve to go to hell for that. And people get into a terrible state about that. And then people from the prayer groups around them and their minister, they come and they counsel them and they say, oh, just the fact that you're noticing you're so sinful, that would show you're a child of God. And they, they'll quote Bible verses to sort of show the person, no, 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 you think you're really sinful and going to hell, but even though you are this terrible sinful wretch, look, look, we can see the signs, we can see the tokens, God has saved you, this is fantastic, join us and pray to show your fantastic gratitude to this wonderful God who has saved you despite you you not deserving it. And, you know, the conceived prayer that I'm telling you about is the motor through which this whole process works. So you start with all the terrifying stuff, with the wretched stuff where you're repenting and you're saying, oh, I, I'm sinful, I'm going to hell, I don't deserve things. And then you break through into joy. And once you break through into joy, you want your life to be guided by God. And so this is where these sort of hotline to God type scenarios in prayer, kind of charismatic prayer, come into it. So so everybody who's a key person in the piety of the covenanting movement, the people sort of like Samuel Rutherford, Johnston of Warriston, you know, they pray like this. I mean, I, I would imagine Argyle prays in these prayer groups as well. So some of the top nobles will be part of that piety too. But this is the sort of thing you're leading ministers and the gentry and the people around them. They pray like this. And this kind of praying is what gives you what I would call regenerate authority. So what's that? In the early modern world, we all know about the great chain of being. So the fact of authority is God, and then God cascades. It's kind of a trickle-down theory of authority to the king, to the nobles, the bishops, the lairds, the gentry, the burgesses, and then down to scruff like us. You know, we're, we're kind of at the bottom. We don't have very much authority, particularly not if we're women, for heaven's sake. But when you have regenerate authority, the authority is coming direct from the source. It's coming down the pipeline from God. And God often prefers to work through the least of these, maybe even little girls, maybe even women, because that shows it really is the divine. Because I mean, you can't expect a woman to have any sort of, you know, good insights into political things or to know what she's talking about, you know. So if she says something sensible, <laughs> well, clearly that was the Holy Spirit speaking through her. It's a miracle. A miracle. <laughs> a, wo a woman said something sensible. You know, yeah, this, this, has to, this has to be God. So, I mean, I'm, I'm only joking a little bit here because you, you see, this is the reasoning that you see. I mean, I've worked on a much later child prophet called Amelia Geddy, and from when she 
she was a little girl, she would say things that were very on point, you know, about the, the prayer groups and the covenanters in the later period. And, you know, you've got ministers and the adults around her going, oh, wow, wow, she must have had that direct from God in prayer. So you have this alternative pipeline of authority and it can work through women. Now, this is terrifying stuff, absolutely terrifying stuff in early modern times because it's upsetting the great chain of being. Because the other thing it means is the king, who's meant to be the big vice regent on earth, the fount of authority, is saying, you stop all that nonsense, you have my prayer book, and you're going to sign my covenant. No, not your covenant, my covenant. And then you've got, as well as the nobles and the gentry, you've got sort of fairly ordinary people like Margaret Mitchelson sort of going, nope, we've spoken to God about this. We've heard the minister talking about it. We've been and we've sworn the covenant. When we swore the covenant, we had this amazing extent charismatic experience. Nathan Hood's written some really good stuff on this. So you, you suddenly have quite ordinary people who have a place to stand. They have an ability to say no and feel very confident about it, to say no to the king, to say no to their social betters. So that's a very, very frightening thing in early modern terms. But when you're in this dodgy place that the Covenanters are in the autumn of 1638, you've got to ride the tiger. You've got to bring the street along with you. You've got to say, well, we're all together being this new Israel, this godly nation, and these amazing charismatic experiences that we're having show that God's with us. We, the common wheel, we're, we're all in it. We're all in it together. We're doing the right thing, and we're going to stand up against the king. Could you say a bit more about this regenerate authority? It sounds really interesting. If you're regenerate, you're one of the elect. And that doesn't mean you suddenly become a perfect person. Oh, dearie me, that would be antinomianism. Uh, you know, being able to do everything without saying, no, none of that. Um, but what happens is the Holy Spirit working within you regenerates you. And it makes you a better and better person. So you approach being really, really good, but you can never be properly good, not till you go to heaven. You know, once you've had the conversion experience, you're you're on the, the pathway to becoming the new creature, to being regenerated by the, the work of the Holy Spirit within you. So that that's why I, I call it regenerate authority. It's the authority that the people who are part of the elect, who are walking that pathway in which they feel the, the Holy Spirit's making the new creature within them and they sort of feel they have this kind of hotline to God and that's what really gives them confidence when they have to tell the king or their laird or somebody above them, just no, no, we're not doing that. We think it's sinful. I think regenerate authority is a very useful term because this all makes me think of some of the complaints and, and issues that the royal authorities had down in England with Calvinists and with the Puritans and this idea that these people who are convinced that they are the elect will act against the social norms because why do they care what the social norms are? They've been chosen by God and they know it. Yeah, this is a sort of hilarious thing because, you know, you have people who are sort of completely on board with this, like uh, Johnston of Warriston and Henry Rollock and Samuel Rutherford and their pals. But, of course, at a certain point, they have to deal with the sort of more conservative parts of Scottish society. I mean, you know, these people are gentlemen and ministers. They're not your radical Anabaptists running about in the streets. So they have to also 
not frighten the horses so that they can bring as much of Scots society along with them as possible. So it's this kind of, I suppose, riding two horses, to mix my metaphors a little bit. On the one hand, you want the godly people, you want to bring them with you and you want them to be really excited about it. Or on the other hand, you don't want to scare the landed establishment too much. And if you're somebody like Johnson the Forest, then you're part of both. Now, this makes me think that the whole idea that certain covenanters are listening to the words and the actions of anyone who who feels this regenerative authority, how does that work with the general Presbyterian problem with independent churches that becomes such a significant issue later on when the independents in England take control? There's this wonder, not all of Archibald Johnson of Warriston's uh, famous diary is in print. I've been through the, the transcripts made by the 20th century editors for uh, the, I think it's the two later volumes the National Library of Scotland so I can't remember if this bit is in the printed diary or if it's in the manuscript diary so at one point Warriston bumps into some people from the Society of Friends some Quakers coming back from a meeting and they have a bit of a barney with each other because Warriston of old people you know who's making his decisions in, in his prayer groups is arguing with the, the Quakers I can't remember it exactly so this is a bit of a paraphrase and he's saying how do you know the things you get are right and they're saying oh we get these inspirations in time of meeting and Warriston just goes ha but you don't test them against the bible like we do you just think because you got them in your meetings they're correct <laughs> so, so the, the, the great covenant I mean it's hilarious because you can't put a cigarette paper between not just my radical covenanters there are Episcopalians with very similar piety like John Forbes and then you have you know the people from the Society of Friends and you're looking at them in terms of piety and you think you're all doing the same thing you all sort of come out of the the same kind of piety but you're calling each other terrible heretics and you know the same with the Baptists you're you're thinking these people it's like what you get when you get the little socialist groups are all falling out with each other and going oh I'm the popular (laughs) front of Judea you're the Judean popular front it's it's this kind of nitpicking so the answer they would give you is we test everything by scripture but you know how elastic that can be. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what they'd say is they'd say, we have all the scaffolding. Later on, they'd say, well, you know, look at our Westminster divines. Look at people like Robert Bailey and George Gillespie. And they're fantastic biblical scholars. And, you know, they will keep us right. And we test things against that. In practice, I don't think you find very much in the Bible telling you what to do about the engagers or the covenant and uh, this sort of things. In practice, it's, well, what do the important ministers and nobles and gentry think? And what do they think when they are faced with some quite, well, let's say revolutionary ideas coming out of these regenerate authority speakers? This is one of the fascinating things about Margaret Mitchelson. Warriston takes her into his household and she's basically giving performances. She falls down on a bed in the bedroom and starts her inspired speeches and they have stenographers taking it down in shorthand. There's a lot of manuscript circulation going 
on at this time. You have people crowding into the bedroom. You have crowds in the streets. The stuff the stenographers has taken down is being passed all around Edinburgh to get people excited. But Warriston also sets up private meetings with her. And he sets up private meetings in which he brings along the key nobles in the Covenant and cause for them to ask questions to her and for her to answer them in her inspired speeches in her trance. And Warriston gets a whole meeting of them around people. I think Yester's one of them. I think the Lord Advocate's there. There's a whole bunch of them, basically. And they come along, and as far as Warriston's concerned, they're very, very satisfied with what she has to say. And Warriston is praising God because she's got the message across, which, you know, shows you Margaret must have been quite an astute person herself. When I mean, she's picked all this stuff up, and, you know, she can pray it out and also answer questions from people far above her in social status. She's got the confidence and the ability to do that, which is really quite remarkable. Of course, not everyone feels like this about Margaret. Royalists really don't like her at all. In fact, we, we've got some very hostile sources about her, you know, basically sort of saying, well, she takes fits or, you know, she's just a copycat. She's just learnt to copy the, the stuff around her. It's those kind of accusations. Later on, Gilbert Burnett writing decades after, but he's Warriston's nephew. He's a member of the, the family who's had a chance to speak to people who were there. He says she had the vapours and, you know, people who just said she had the vapours were accounted to be giving a charitable account of it because I suppose what he's saying is other people might have said she was inspired by Satan and it was really the devil speaking through her. So, you know, basically the royalist stuff is, well, she's a silly woman. She's falling down and she's copying people. It's just nonsense that she's and maybe she's mentally ill and she's having fits. So, I mean, obviously, who's going to listen to that? that? That just shows you the kind of people these covenanters are and why you shouldn't go near them. So you've got this split. You've got some nobles who really want to come and listen to her and who seem to be very, very relieved by it. This is a dangerous time. We all know we're going to war. It's the run-up to the Glasgow Assembly as well. So, I mean, if you're a noble and you're at the head of this, well, you're thinking about what's going to happen to your head. Is it going to be on a spike over the toll booth sometime soon? So, you know, are you going to lose everything? Obviously, it's a really terrifying time for them so sort of hearing divine assurance that yes your covenant's inscribed in heaven yes Jesus is behind it yes you should go on and do something about the bishops that's obviously got to be a very reassuring message to hear if you believe that it is God speaking through the messenger. Royalists, we can understand their scepticism they have reasons to be sceptical but what about people on the covenanting side surely not everyone who subscribed to the Covenant believed that this young girl was in contact with God directly. Oh, I'm sure this is the case because we've got some very conservative people on the, the Covenanting side. Robert Bailey, Brunism, as he says as a Scot, Brownism, Anabaptism. I mean, he's the sort of person who, like McCarthy, would be hunting for Brunus under the bed. You know, he's, he's, he's very worried about Brunism and the way you get Brunism is private meetings. He's quite worried about this. He's one of the more conservative ministers. He doesn't say anything explicit about Margaret, but we know from his general attitudes, he's always going, this savours of Brunism and that savours of Brunism. Well, I'm pretty sure Margaret would have savoured of Brunism to him. <laughs> And we, we also have the way Margaret disappears after her purpose has been served. 
So Margaret is doing this on the run-up to the Glasgow Assembly. Now, one thing I'm not sure about is whether she goes to the Glasgow Assembly with Warriston or not, because there's some debate about it. And he talks about praying for her stay. Now, stay is a very ambiguous word in Scots, because it can mean, you know, praying for something to be stopped to be stayed. So is Warriston praying for her to go or not to go? And then you get this funny gap in Warriston's diary, which, oh, just happens to cover about the whole of the Glasgow Assembly. And this is just at the time, right up to the eve of the Glasgow Assembly, Warriston's, to me, it seems like he's absolutely infatuated with Margaret. He's found a kindred soul. They practice meditations. He looks at how Margaret meditates and the amazingness of God. And then he tries it himself and he has these amazing bodily manifestations of ecstasy and shuddering and this kind of thing. He and Margaret are incredibly close in piety. She's in his household when he's very busy. Instead of going to church, she'll get Margaret to come and give her inspired prayers, her inspired speeches to him, and he'll consider that as good as going to a sermon. Now we're in really dodgy territory in the early modern world here. And just to sort of home in a little more on what's dodgy about it, as I've said, one of the great hallmarks of this kind of piety is conceived prayer, extempore prayer. But originally, people really felt that ought to be the hallmark of a minister. If you're going to have a prayer group with this kind of prayer, there ought to be a minister there or people should be using set prayers. But of course, that goes out the window and everyone's having conceived prayer. But you, you've now got this, this young lassie. She's probably a teenager from what we can make out, who's basically using conceived prayer in front of groups of her betters and they are hearkening to her. Now, that's the sort of thing. If a man was doing that, he'd be a minister. He'd be properly ordained and then that would be fine. You know, Mr. Robert Bailey would be totally fine with you listening to him, giving you conceived prayer on what he thought about the king, pouring it all out there. That's fine, you see, because he is a properly ordained minister. But a teenage girl doing that, that's something that's not supposed to happen. So we suddenly get this big gap in the record when Warriston goes to the Glasgow Assembly. He notes that she's made some speeches, but he doesn't say where, whether she's at home in Edinburgh or with him in Glasgow. And the people he talks about praying with in Glasgow, he doesn't mention Margaret there. So we've no sign that she goes to the Glasgow Assembly. And the Glasgow Assembly just seems to be like a full stop. After that, we don't get any more account of crowds coming to hear Margaret, Margaret's speeches being taken down and circulated. We just get this mention that she was very upset that Warriston's wife was sick and that she's gone to visit her granny in the country. And that's it. Margaret disappears from the historical record. And we don't pick her up again until Burnett is writing his history and saying, yeah, yeah, she had the vapours. That's what was wrong with her. So she vanishes. Obviously, I'm speculating now because I don't have sources to go on. But, you know, once you've got the General Assembly, you have a proper source of authority that is recognised in Scotland. Well, maybe not so much by the Royalists, but you've got a much broader base of authority to go through. This is a properly constituted church court with, you know, properly ordained ministers in it. The king's given permission for it to be held. So when the Glasgow Assembly comes out against bishops there, you have the real deal. 
and you don't need these sort of dodgier sources of authority like here's a guy who says he was a Jesuit but he got better, here's, here's Margaret and her inspired speeches, you don't need that anymore and it's got the potential to split the movement with the more conservative people saying oh no 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 we, we just don't like that, we just don't want that. It's something you commonly see in revolutionary situations that when you sort of lack people outside the normal powerful class have a voice and a role in things as soon as the sort of new elite have sort of really got themselves in place they start walking some of that back they start putting things on a more conservative footing but there always is that kind of radical streak within the covenanting movement which we see in people like Rutherford and, and Warriston and Argyle and their pals that has outlived its major utility once you get the Glasgow Assembly. So that's the point where they retrench and they get a bit more conservative. So just before we, we move on from Margaret, that's one hell of a mystery. Yes. I would immediately assume that Warriston just kicked her out or, or got rid of her in some other way, except for how close he seems to be with her before that. Wouldn't there have to be, there would have to be a quite a strong reason or motivation rather than merely she's inconvenient now. <laughs> Well, you know, this is the sort of thing when you have a gap in the sources, you know, your mind runs rampant and you can't put this sort of thing in an academic paper, but we can we can have a bit of a speculation. Now, if I was Lady Warriston... Ah, that was my other question. What did his wife think? <laughs> we don't know. I mean, my goodness, she puts up with a lot. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, Archibald Johnson of Warriston, I got into the familiar habit when I was writing about him of calling him Archie. What she puts up with from Archie. Oh, good grief. And particularly once they have the big brood of children and Archie is just really not good bringing the money in, looking after the money, making sure the children are, are okay. And I mean, if I was Helen Hay, I would just have been tearing my hair and, hello, guess what? I've got a teenage prophetess for the household. You know, oh no. You know, yes, we're going to spend hours alone in my closet praying. You know, well, I don't know if they did spend hours alone in his closet praying, but she does pray in front of him. You know, she's having these inspired speeches in front of him that he considers as good as having a minister. Now, if I was Helen and Archie suddenly got this teenage soulmate, we don't know about Margaret, whether she, she's what she looks like. But if I was Helen, I would be going, oh, no. Oh, blimey. What do I do? Somebody's clearly having a word with Warriston at the Glasgow Assembly around that time. It could be ministers like Bailey going, this is this is bad. Or it could be somebody tugs him by the sleeves and says, look, this is potentially a scandal. What are people going to think about this? What he says in the diary is that Margaret's really attached to his wife and really worried about her when she's, she's having another baby about this time. But also that not long after that, Margaret's gone off to the country to visit her grandmother. Now, it could be just something simple like Margaret falls sick and dies and we don't know. It's in a part of the diary that we don't have. There's, you know, a huge volume of Warrison's diary that's missing. 
and, you know, the missing volume of Warrison's diary, the great book. I mean, maybe that tells us the, the end of, of Margaret's story, what happens to her. You know, there's lots of candidates for who could have said to, to Johnson and Warrison, just stop it. And it could be the Conservatives around Bailey. It could be his wife. It could be his wife's relations. But, you know, I think probably the word scandal might have gone in there to scandalize people one of the godly say one of the godly being found you know sort of playing golf on the sabbath or something that's to scandalize people that's a scandal a godly person should not give scandal we're just completely speculating on the basis of no sources at all um so but Somebody probably tugs Morrison by the sleeve and says, you know, look, this was fine, it's accomplished its purpose, but now you're giving scandal. You should probably stop that. But we just don't know. It's one of these mysteries I would absolutely love to know, but it may just be as prosaic as she dies or she marries or she just stops this or she says, you know, oh, my inspiration's gone, I can't do it anymore. The time's passed, the spirit's not asking me to do this anymore. We just don't know, but I do wonder about if you're taking a single teenage girl into your household and having her praying in front of you at all hours, it does occur to me as a woman, what does your wife think? Probably not very highly of it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. If only I wish, she'd oh, kept a diary. I wish we yes. had a diary oh. from Helen. It'd probably oh, just be mostly just oh, complaints about yeah. Archie. Well, that would be very valuable. What <laughs> to complain about him at times? Now, your chapter does touch on other examples of what you call gendered piety. Now, I wonder if you could expand a little bit more about what that is and how that, what role that played in these these events. Women are just incredibly important. At the time when I wrote my PhD thirty years ago, people had heard of women's history, but it was still considered a relatively niche thing. I hadn't set out to do women's history, and they just leapt off the pages at me. They were everywhere, to my great enjoyment. What I found was that the official party line, which is, oh, no, no, we don't listen to women, good heavens, no. And what people did in practice were entirely different. You get very, very important women like Elizabeth Melville, Lady Curris, the poet, the published author, who is a vital force in organising big communions with the resistance to the five articles. The five articles of Perth, that's James VI and Farris trying to bring the Scottish Kirk more into line with the English Kirk over things like ceremonies and baptism and sitting at communion and this sort of thing. The faction of the Presbyterians who are really into heart work, piety, they hate that absolutely hate that. They, they see it as the first sign of formal ceremonies coming in, which, you know, are not what, what's in the Bible. They're not what God wants. And they're also going to stifle the spirit. So they start organising resistance against that. And a very important part of that resistance is Elizabeth Melville, um, who's, you know, she has the kind of patronage. She can get the key ministers to come and preach at communions. And also people listen to her. Now, as I say, women are not meant to be doing conceived prayer in front of groups as leaders. So what happens is that one of the other leaders, William Rigg of Federny, he hears that she's praying and she's getting motion upon her liberty in prayer, the spirit's clearly speaking through her. So he tells her to speak out so the other people in her bedroom can hear. She's behind her bed curtains and she says, it's just me and your ladies, you know, speak up. You know, obviously God's you're having this great motion upon you, God speak, we want to hear. So she speaks up, and then of course everyone else sneaks in. 
to you know to hear the guidance that she's getting now this is a very highly placed woman and nobody is accusing her of having fit and she's one of the leaders of the movement but they still have to come up with this kind of dodge to make it respectable that she's leading through conceived prayer giving guidance through conceived prayer so she's very important Morrison's grandmother Rachel Arnott she's another very important woman um so you have this sort of network of important women who are key patrons for the Presbyterian ministers of this kind of piety and women just generally play a very important role. Something, something that amused me, this is much later, this is going into the time of the protesters and the resolutioners, that, that little split they have round about the, the late 40s, early 1650s. And you've got a minister and the, minister, the ministers meet in presbytery, they go for their prayer group. But the wives hold their prayer group at the same time. And then, you know, the minister says to his wife, what did the wives get in prayer? What did your prayer group get in prayer? He's obviously very, very keen to know. So it's not equality. And as soon as you would try and pin somebody down in public, they'd go, oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't listen to the women. Good grief, what gave you that idea? Um, but in practice, um, because they're seen as being able to get this kind of direct contact in prayer as godly women in practice women are much more influential than they've often been given credit for they, they're they seen as very important to the the household piety a godly woman that can be seen as really important something you look for in a marriage you know is is the wife godly is she a godly person so women wield a lot more influence than you might think but there are hard limits on that that come from sexism. And nobody's going to say, you're fantastic, Elizabeth. Do you want to be a minister? That's just not going to happen. Nobody's going to ordain a woman. Nobody's going to let a woman sit in the General Assembly or Parliament, no matter who she is and what God's saying to her. That's just not going to happen. You can be somebody like Margaret coming from a, a Presbyterian family, likely a minister's family. You can have all these gifts for sort of, you know, picking up the current preaching and praying, but you will never be allowed to exercise that in a pulpit because you're a woman. Would contemporaries see the behaviour of, of Margaret and uh, of, of Melville? How did they distinguish between that and seeing that clearly as a as a manifestation of God's will, a godly possession almost and demonic possession like you mentioned that the accusations could fly around but how did the people who agreed with what margaret was saying how did they console themselves saying oh no of course she's speaking to god rather than the devil is speaking to her it's a really fantastic question and i think a lot of it has to do with who you are and what you're saying so, and one of the, the key things to remember is in the conversion experience, in the first phase of it, the phase where you think you're damned and you think you're going to hell, you have all kinds of manifestations of things like you can think the you can think you see the devil, you can think the bad thoughts in your head are being thrown in by the devil, you can end up crying and howling in pain. The terrors phase, the first phase of conversion is not that dissimilar to what we see in demonic possession. I, I noticed that demonic possessions, the later demonic possessions, we're up in the 1690s now, talking about people like Christian Shaw, 
that they seemed very akin to the conversion experience. And I also looked at later visionaries, female visionaries uh, from around the 16, 1660s, 1670s, 1680s. I noticed they tended to have what I would call a terrorist phase or a demonic phase, where the, the first manifestations were seeing things like witches dancing around your bed or a bony hand reaching out to you or the devil or hearing a noise like a gunshot, you know, various sort of weird manifestations before people break through into the ecstatic stuff. And I don't think these things are very different from the demonic possessions at all except in how they are interpreted. It's very, very hard to unpick. Demonic possession in Scotland is very, very odd because, for instance, we know we have demonic possession cases in the 1590s, but they're like a footnote, a sideshow. If you read through the processes of the, the famous North Berwick witch hunt cases, you will come across references to a possessed young girl who's on the prime witch hunter David Seaton's land and they're accusing the witches of having got her possessed. But that never makes it through into the formal ditties, or maybe it's in court cases that we've lost, because we don't have all the court cases. So you know there's a concept of demonic possession there in the 1590s. And then where does it go? You know, there are one or two sort of mid-century cases where they think they've got somebody who can speak in tongues. The devil, not, not Christians speaking in tongues, the devil speaking through the possessed, being able to speak in different languages. But you don't see sort of formal witchcraft cases with possession. But what you do see are these demonic manifestations which are treated as conversion crises. So you get somebody who is being afflicted by the devil, seeing the devil in shapes, having sort of terrible afflictions in the body. And what happens is their local laird immediately calls a group of ministers to pray with them. Now, what ministers do when they get people being afflicted by the demonic is they fast and pray. That's the biblical thing. That's how you drive out bad spirit. Because that doesn't look like a liturgical exorcism, people have been saying, oh, they don't do exorcisms in Scotland. They don't have demonic possessions. But I think the... The actual phenomena are there, but they're being seen as, oh, that person's being afflicted by the devil. They're maybe in the, the first phases of conversion. We need to pray with them and we need to counsel them and we need to educate them properly in the Christian religion so they know how to pray, how to, to see off the devil. There's, you know, a work of God going on here. You also get things, you get poltergeist cases, which again are very like, possession cases where things are being thrown around, supernatural things are happening. There's usually a sort of very upset adolescent in the house. And again, what people do is they bring the local ministers in and the ministers pray and fast. And that's sort of how you deal with these things. So I wonder how much of the, the classic possession cases we see in the 1690s and the later end of the, the century is that people have been picking up how to have a possession case from reading literature elsewhere about Salem and other things. Because we actually see a, that copycat thing in process because Christian Shaw's, the account of what happens to Christian Shaw is read out to the young boy in Pitt and Weem who's having fits and it's almost like educating him on how to be a better demoniac. It's it's there, but it's in a sort of amorphous, non-classic way. You can expect a godly person to have demonic manifestations as part of sort of 
breaking through to reassurance, breaking through to realising you're one of the elect and having all this lovely inspiration and feeling filled with the Holy Spirit in prayer. It's taken for granted that the devil afflicts you and begins by afflicting you until you start to get the victory over him. So in a way, the conversion experience and the prayer experiences with it are like a kind of exorcism, progressively driving out the devil around you. There is this belief in the demonic there definitely is, of course, you know, we're, we're talking about the time of the, the, the witch hunts. But as long as they believe your head and husband is, is Christ, God is in charge, you're working to become repent and become godlier, that seems to be okay. People seem to be willing to work with that unless the messages you're bringing are going against them because obviously if you're a bishop and you have a covenanting visionary sort of saying yeah you lot are in the pay of antichrist and people shouldn't collaborate with you you're going to say well she has the vapors obviously or it's the devil speaking through her you're, you're not going to accept that but you have a form of piety in which people are very intimate with the devil but they're driving him out but he is he is part of that it's quite it's quite hard to express it's quite hard to get across that in the beginnings of you know becoming a godly person you will struggle with the devil you may even see the devil you may even be convinced that that crow you see is really the devil or that that hair you see is really a witch sent by by the devil but you can you can by making the breakthrough into the godly prayer life and working with the ministers who are also praying you can resist that and if you make the breakthrough into having ecstatic visions as well, and you've got the sort of ministers and the local godly people saying, yes, this is one of us, this is one of the godly, and when we check this against the Bible, it looks correct. It's not telling this person to do sinful things, then they'll accept that. But if you start going around saying, I'm, I'm having visions of the Queen of Spain's magician and uh, the devil's telling me to, to go molest the housemaid, they'll quickly say, you, you've either lost your reason, you're disordered in your mind, you're suffering from melancholia, or if you, you start spitting up pins and shouting obscenities and things, they'll go, yeah, no, you are possessed by the devil and we have to, to drive that out. And the alternative is if they decide because you've got this history of quarrels and accusations that, yeah, you, you must have really made a pact with the devil. Or, yeah, I've been talking to the fairies. The fairies have been telling me how to heal people. Yeah, that wasn't the king of fairy you were talking to. That was the devil. You made a pact with him. So we've got this entire sort of preternatural and supernatural landscape that people function that's both inside and outside them. because. When people are having these visionary experiences that they're, they're talking to the, the king of fairy or the queen of fairy, well, what's happening? We don't actually think the king of fairy and the queen of fairy are, are roaming around 17th century Scotland, leaping out on people. These people are having visions too. The people who say they're meeting silly whites and fairies they are having visions too. But if you go and take those visions to your minister, the minister is not going to say, oh, you're a godly person having, having great visions. They're going to go, no, nope, you were talking to the devil and you'd better repent that straight away. Or, you know, more likely, yeah, we think you made a demonic pact and then you're in real trouble. You know, there's just an entire supernatural landscape which is both within and without people. People will say they're externally seeing angels, they're externally seeing the devil, they're externally seeing fairies, but what actually is going on with them? That was going to be my other question, because if we assume that God and the devil are not 
giving people these visions and leading them to say the things they're saying. What explains the behaviour of Margaret Mitchelson and others like her? Do we have... Is there a general consensus? I don't think there is, but one of the things I really noticed when I, I looked closely at Johnson of Morrison's diary, where he's talking about how Margaret does her meditations and where he's recording his own meditations, is that Morrison was able to start with, I suppose, what we'd call a guided visualisation about the magnificence of God. And then as he gets more and more into it, he starts to have more and more involuntary manifestations. And there's one case where he has this amazing vision of the Trinity, which I, I can't do justice to it. I'd have to find it and have to have to read it. So you can start off doing things that are voluntary spiritual practices. But if you get right into it, there are things that that take over. And while a believer might say, well, obviously, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the devil. And if you're not a believer, you're sort of going, well, well, we don't know what those processes are, but we know that was, to that person, that was real. Something real happened. They didn't just sort of make this up as if they were writing a novel. You know, there are forms of piety. And I have to say, again, I am speculating here. I'm totally speculating here. When I look at some of the early witch cases where you have these very rare cases where the accused person, they say they get their healing from the fairies and they go with the fairies and they meet the fairies at wells. And you get things like Bessie Dunlop talking about her, I suppose you'd call him a spirit guide, Tom Reed, who's undead. He died at the Battle of Pinky many years before he allegedly meets Bessie, and yet here he is. He's not a normal human being. He's dead. He can disappear through a tiny hole in a wall in a way that no human being, nobody who wasn't a spirit, can do. I'm sure to Bessie that was real. I don't think she's making it up out of whole cloth. You, you've got other cases where people talk about encounters with fairies to her, that it, however it happens, that experience is real. I'm sure she genuinely believes in Tom and believes she's met him. Now, Julian Goodyear's done a lot of really good work about these things, sort of looking at modern concepts of things like the fantasy-prone personality, that some people, they just do have very rich fantasy lives and things can seem very, very real to them. People can go into trance states and believe what they're seeing is absolutely 100% real. We're not entirely sure that we know what it is. I just think as early modernists, we're best to say, well, that was real to them. Let's try and understand it on, on their terms. It's very nice when we have modern analogues. That can be very thought-provoking. I like Julian's work. But when I'm working with the, you know, what the person themselves has said and how it's been transmitted to me, my feeling is, you know, what do they make of it? What do they believe is happening? I do wonder if my inverted commas fairy healers who get accused as witches, if they had techniques as well for bringing on visions. But I mean, if Johnson of Warriston can do it, why can't Bessie Dunlop? It's interesting you bring up the, the similarities to cases like Salem and, uh, and down south in England. During these sessions of divine inspiration... Did Margaret or, or anyone fulfilling a similar role, did they ever denounce anyone? Saying so-and-so is sinful or so-and-so has to stop their behaviour or... Oh, oh yes. So this is sort of one of my later visionaries. She's asked about whether 
a minister in a scandalous case uh, really committed a murder. And uh, she says yes. But this is, this is one of the interesting things. These covenanting visionaries, they have parallels with the inverted commas fairy healers because they, they talk about people they've seen in heaven and this kind of thing. You know, and that's a common thing that's asked to the, the fairy healers. They say, well, I've seen so-and-so riding with the, the fairies. They know about what happened to people after death. And again, you know, some of my later visionaries say they've seen people who have died uh, in heaven and you know one of my later visionaries i mean when it comes to denouncing bishops she can denounce bishops <laughs> she's not doing it by name she's doing it as a class and she, she's got a big message for the the king the prodigal king she's using the parable of the the prodigal for charles ii this is a later visionary to sort of you know she she sort of foresees him repenting and realizing all the evil things people have been up to this is barbara peebles so yeah they can denounce people and I, i'm sure they do I mean, you know, and Margaret certainly had things to say about the bishops. Unfortunately, they don't spell it out and, you know, say what she does. And if I hop back to my accused witch fairy healers, uh, what got Bessie into trouble was saying, you know, when somebody asked her about stolen plough iron, saying, yeah, it was these blacksmiths who stole them. And then the blacksmiths are very annoyed about this. And this is what sucks Bessie into a, a witch trial. Your fairy healer could tell you who had stolen things or who had bewitched you. So, for instance, Agnes Sampson, one of the very famous accused witches in the North Berwick, case she worked with spirits which of course they they say is the devil they don't tell us what Agnes would have said which might have been something quite different about it but one of the things she does is she tells somebody who has bewitched her this is before she's prosecuted. This is when she's just being a healer in the community. Somebody over at Treprain says, my wife's very sick. And she goes, oh yeah, it's this other guy who later gets accused as a witch. He's bewitched her. Visionaries can denounce people. They have access to knowledge that you don't have. Whether they are talking to the fairies or whether they are talking to, to Jesus, they have knowledge that, that you don't have. And they may use that to either praise people or to denounce them. Wonderful. So, Louise, to bring our lovely session to an end, was there a Scottish revolution? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of got elements of it, hasn't it? What they really want to do is to check royal power. And that isn't so revolutionary. You know, bodies like parliaments have wanted to check royal power for centuries. So, you know, that that's an old song, you might say. But it has within it the seeds of revolutionary things. You know, the fact that people are sort of willing to listen to ministers like Samuel Rutherford or visionaries like Margaret Mitchell. And the fact that people are sort of toying with godly authority. That, that to me, that's got the seeds of revolution. They never quite go there. We don't get a sort of Scottish bare bones parliament or anything like that. But they're sort of toying with quite revolutionary notions. There's a revolutionary seed there. I think you maybe see it more when you get to the era of the later Covenanters, the United Society people who, oh, they say very, very radical things and they excommunicate the king. That's pretty radical. I, you know, I can't imagine the, you know, the, the Covenanters of the Haiti of Covenant saying, yeah, we're going to excommunicate the king. They would not do that. But you've got the seeds of that kind of extremist revolutionary thought lying there so i don't know that i'd call it a revolution but it's got the seeds of the revolutionary within it what a fantastic answer dr louise yeoman thank you so much for coming onto the show
Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. 